I was never planning to have a sponsor for the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy, and I really believe in BetterHelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple, and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $45 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files. It's professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? And that third day was was where it just consumed me. And I remember my wife taking my son to to preschool and and she was getting ready to take my daughter and she she yelled down said goodbye and I I just remember that being the day where I was like they don't need me anymore. Welcome to the Depression Files where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm Al Levin, the host, and today we have with us Eric Robinson. Eric is a general contractor and the founder of Building a Refuge. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks, Al. I appreciate you having me. So, Eric, tell us uh, just in general, what type of work do you do as a general contractor? Yeah, so I I do quite a bit of residential work. Uh, We do um, residential rehabs, um, basically from anywhere from basement remodels to kitchen remodels and then on up to just full flips for people and real estate investors and just basically anything that has to do with residential we can take care of. Okay, cool. And you're located in Indiana, aren't you? Yeah, in Indianapolis, north side of Indianapolis. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, so my uh, idea of a what a general contractor is, then you take on these jobs, and then you are the one, really, who's kind of coordinating all the pieces. Like if you need to pull an electrician in and coordinate when yes. they come in, and the plumber, and the drywall, and all the different pieces. Yeah, we've got a lot of different subs that work for us, and like I said, anything basic. The only thing that we haven't ventured into yet is building from the ground up so basically anything that has a a structure to it we can rehab it or do whatever we need to to it okay and then as a general as a general contractor are you also the one who's like out looking for properties as well uh for some people yeah um we've got we've got some investors that we have that are from out of town who like um they kind of try to refer to it as boots on the ground um, so I, I look for some properties for them at, from time to time and, and then, uh, we'll come in and we'll do the rehabs for them, get bids for them. And 
from different subs and different people that depending on the scope of the work will come in and do that that work for them as well we've got a couple investors from out of town that like to use us all right cool and then our general yeah. contractors typically guys who have worked in the business in one of the trades before becoming a general contractor or what was your history like uh, actually, believe it or not, uh, I was in um, internet sales. So I, I did a lot of, I did uh, internet recruitment uh, prior to doing this. Uh, so prior to doing this, I was, uh, I worked for an engineering firm and I was, uh, I recruited for companies throughout the country. Uh, how, I, how I got involved in real estate and in, in general contracting was from my current boss who kind of said, hey, you know, look into this. And so I, I actually initially started into the real estate world as a real estate investor. Gotcha. And it's kind of, as we get into the story and I'll tell you guys a little bit more, that's how I got into general contracting through kind of that route. It was a kind of went the other way as opposed to the way that some people get into the business. But, uh, it, uh, it started out in the corporate world when I got out of college and then moved into real estate investing. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is the biggest headache of being a contractor? <laughs> um hopefully none of my subs hear this hear this <laughs> podcast but, but but subs uh yeah. just just it, it's the coordination piece and the and really in indianapolis um it, it's a very hot market which i mean majority of the country is right now but indianapolis stays pretty steady and finding not only good subs but subs that are available are the most difficult thing right we just had yeah. a huge uh expansion put on our school and we had a general contractor, of course, and then the number of subs was huge. And even the subs <laughs> had subs, and, and it was kind right. of crazy, you know. And then if somebody was backing out of a contract or they were delayed because of parts and whatnot, then it impacted, like, the whole job. It was pretty incredible to kind of watch. Yeah, and we we have ventured in recently uh, in the last about six months into commercial and um, you know, going from residential into commercial, you know, those things happen in residential and you can, you can, you can kind of turn on a dime a little bit in residential and it doesn't cost you necessarily as much money when you get into commercial and you get a hiccup like that. It, it, you add a few zeros to the, to, yeah. to the, to the amount of money that you just lost. So it, it, right. uh, it, it's, it's an adventure. It yeah. definitely is an adventure. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine. How about the, uh, your favorite part of being a contractor? Uh, just the freedom and, 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 and actually the people, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's a double edged sword there. It's, it's the good and the bad of being around people. I, I, I used to be, and, and I still am kind of, but I, I used to be an introvert and I enjoyed my, my job as a salesperson, um, you know, on the phone, a majority of my work was on the phone. So I enjoyed that, but the more and more I got into it, the more and more I enjoyed, you know, um, uh, interacting face to face and, and just, just the idea of creating something from nothing. Um, cause a lot of the properties that we work on are, are really bad. And, um, it, it taking that and the finished product is pretty satisfying. Oh yeah. That's gotta be hugely rewarding. It is. It is. It definitely is. So, uh, I know you've got your own story, uh, around mental health, primarily yeah. depression. I think, uh, when did you first experience depression? Yeah. So, that's what I kind of alluded to earlier. Um, my corporate life um, was spent in engineering recruitment, and and through a boss of mine, I got introduced into real estate investing. And to make a real long story short, um, we got up to about 80 properties, my own personal properties. And then 2008, 2009 happened, and I lost everything. 
and uh, I lost I lost all my properties. I lost a uh, house. We went into foreclosure, bankruptcy, you name it. The every financial downfall you can think of, we went through it. And um, that that was kind of right in the middle of it. But as I began to to see my business failing, I realized where my where my identity was, and my identity was thinking in my mind that I was a big fish in a, in a small pond and I was really a small fish in a big pond. <laughs> and, right. and, uh, it, it, my identity was in, you know, the stuff that I had. I mean, we had, we had accumulated a lot of, uh, not a lot of wealth, but some wealth, uh, more than I had ever experienced before. And, and in the course of about six months, my rental rates went from 95% down to 60%. And we hung on to, we hung on more, uh, you know, longer than most people did because we held back a lot of money. But um, about a year after, you know, everything hit, we just couldn't afford to keep the properties anymore. So all my properties went into default and, and we lost everything. And so during that time, you know, that was a kind of a slow burn. It was it was something that it didn't happen overnight. It felt like it did. But, um, you know, over the course of about six months, I went from being one of the happiest, most jovial dudes you've ever met to, to being just completely down in the dumps to the point where, um, about that time I had a, had some jaw surgery done and I recouped in my basement and that recuperation, uh, when I was recuperating from it was about a two week process. And that just kind of drove me further and further into this, this new thing that I, I was dealing with called depression. And, and unfortunately it, uh, I spent the last three days of that in complete darkness, no television, no nothing. My kids were upstairs playing and I was listening to them play. And I was just going to ask if you had a family at a time at the time. I did. So how many, I did. how many kids, how old? Uh, I had, I had uh, two children at the time when that was there, they were six and three. Okay. And, and my, my wife, uh, my wife and I had been married for about seven years at the time. Okay. And, and, uh, everything was great. And, and she was walking with me through all this stuff. And, but it just got to a point where like, and it's hard to explain to people who have never been through depression before, but I literally could not physic I couldn't physically get up off my couch. Right. And, and like you said, that didn't happen overnight, right? So no. did you feel and see some other symptoms gradually coming in? Yeah. So I, I, I I started to feel the first thing that I really remember feeling was, um, I am I'm, I'm a healthy guy. Uh, I'm, I, I work out a lot. I, I, I play a lot of sports and all that stuff. And, and I never really had had any, I mean, this is kind of silly, but like the first thing I remember is digestive issues. Uh, I remember feeling sick at my stomach a lot. I remember feeling like having to constantly go to the restroom and then all, all that I was blaming on, you know, the, the, food I was eating or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. And then I really just started to feel like my body was aching. Yeah. Um, so, you I, know, I, the, the stomach piece is interesting for me. I definitely had that as well, but for me, mm -hmm. it literally felt like a knot in my stomach and oh, I was at a point where I couldn't eat at all. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there is some research out there that really connects, uh, the brain to the gut and sure. questions about whether or not some of the, layers and so forth i'm spacing on the words uh of the gut are related to depression but that's interesting and then uh were you still eating regularly i wasn't i wasn't because when i was recuperating from my my jaw surgery um my uh, my jaw was band rubber banded shut 
And so, so I was going through all this stuff while I was doing that. And, and so I had to drink these like milkshake things that, that were like protein milkshakes. And so a lot of it, I thought it was, you know, around that and everything, but it, it, it was a, it was a, it was something I, the first thing I remember was the digestive part of it. The second thing that I remembered were like my joints hurting right. and, and, and just a complete lack of energy. Um, it was difficult and, and see all this I was associating with my, my recovery from my surgery. And, and I just remember feeling this atrophy, um, when I would, when I would like go up the stairs, I'd feel winded when I would, when I would come downstairs, I'd feel winded and, and I just didn't want to do anything. Right. And so, it, but in the back of my head, I was playing my tricks in my mind where it was all about, you know, the fact that I hadn't eaten or I hadn't done this or I hadn't done that. But I would sit in my basement and it, it, it would go past the, the, the idea of depression. I mean, I, I would work myself into this anxious state in thinking about all the things that had, had happened, the people that would be affected because I had investors who invested with me who at the time had, had lost some money with me. And so all that, you know, stress and all that stuff that it led into that depression and an anxiety and what was my future going to be, you know, my identity was in everything that I had accumulated at the point, at that point in time. And all that stuff was slipping out of my hands. And so now I have to deal with the repercussions of my actions. Right. And that kind of, that kind of takes us into the next part of the story where, you know, those three days that I felt that depression, it got to a point where it built up so much that uh, I remember the third day that I was kind of just, it was just dark in my basement. So for three days you were literally just kind of sitting in the dark in your basement. And like you said, you heard the kids upstairs and you you were just sitting on the couch. Give us a sense of what was going on. Well, I, 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 that's the one of the things that I remember the most is I heard my wife upstairs, you know, I could smell dinner cooking and I could, I could hear them playing. I could hear her reading to them. And I just couldn't get up off the couch to go up and be the dad that I wanted to be the husband that I wanted to be. And did your I wife just, know I, that you were down there and just kind of struggling? She, so if you asked her today, she would say, now she sees the signs, but at, at the time she just was think she just thought I was just recuperating from the surgery. Right. Uh, um, she knew she she knew things were bad, and I wasn't being as forthcoming as I should have been. She knew only because our checkbook was getting smaller and smaller. Right. Um, but she didn't. She had no idea um, how bad it was getting and how bad it was about ready to get. Um, Financial wise, you mean, or your depression. Both. Or both. Both. Yeah. Okay. Both. Yeah. Yeah. Financially, you know, at at that point, we hadn't lost everything, but we were we were getting ready to. Right. And and I I didn't. I mean, nobody knows what foreclosures like until you go through it. Nobody knows what it's like to get, you know, a car taken out of their driveway in the middle of the afternoon when you're on a Saturday when all your neighbors are out. You know, nobody nobody knows what that's like until you actually go through it. Wow. And um, it, and it was all your other properties that you owned too that were also all foreclosing on at the same way. Yes. Right. Yeah. They're all they're all gone, and some some of them were still owned by investors that that I had borrowed money to to pay them, but most of them. Uh, probably 80% of them were actually financed. So I had to deal with banks for months on end and, 
it was it was it was an absolute nightmare. It and was that, a perfect that was, storm. That was all before even dealing with your own house going into foreclosure. Oh yeah, yeah, right. yeah. This this was this was a, you know, and, and sometimes the timeline gets confusing for for a lot of people when I try to tell it because there's a lot of things going on at one time, uh, at different points in time. But you know that that main deal where I was talking about with those three days, it was just complete darkness. Like I I, I didn't I I was. I remember the second day I, I kind of, it was one of those, I can't, I don't know if you want to call it kind of the out of body experience type things, but I remember waking up from a, a midday when I was fell asleep or nodded off or something. And I, when I woke up, I was literally curled up in a ball on my, on my uh, couch in my basement. And I, I was like, I just kept remember kept thinking to myself, where, how did we get here? That's what I, that's that was the overwhelming question, and I kept asking myself was how in the world did I get myself to this point? Right. And and it just then then with that comes the thoughts of guilt, the thoughts of um, you know just driving yourself into that anxious point to where the darkness literally overcomes that light, and you just can't even function. And that's what I said earlier is I I couldn't even I couldn't even move. I couldn't yeah. I I was I was I was laying there with with nothing. Um, did you have a all, bathroom down there where you getting just getting up to go to the bathroom and just yeah. sitting back down or yeah that was it that right. was that was what that was what those three days consisted of i didn't i did i told my wife i said just don't come down here i didn't eat i think i had a couple shakes during that time and that was about it uh-huh. and um and that third day was was where it just consumed me um, and I remember my wife's, my wife is a, te- was, was, and is still a teacher. And, uh, I remember her taking my son to, to preschool and, and she was getting ready to take my daughter and she, she yelled down, said goodbye. And I, I just remember that being the day where I was like, they don't need me anymore. Um, they don't, they don't need me around. They don't need, uh, this burden. Um, so I'm just going to end it. And, uh, all, all I remember is, is sitting on my couch. Um, I got, I took, I got up off my couch. I took two steps and to get to my bathroom, you have to walk past my staircase that goes upstairs. And I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I, I had made the decision at that point that I was going to end my life. And I was walking towards my, my bathroom. And the next thing I remember, I'm at the top of my stairs and, uh, I don't remember anything. I don't remember walking up the stairs. I don't remember anything at all. Only thing that I remember is that when I got to the top of my stairs, I just hurt in the, in my head. I was hearing this voice is like, get in your car and get out of here, get in your car and get out of here. And so I, I, I jumped in my car and I took off. Um, and I had gotten to such a low point and I had, I had for those three days, I had cried myself like to a point where I couldn't cry anymore. Cause like the tears, <laughs> I, I I think I, dry, I dried out, um, and I just I just was in this haze, this daze of of just realizing what I had decided to do and where I was at at that point. And that's where my story that's where my story kind of takes off. Um, there's a lot involved in the, the time period that I just talked about, but the the real depression and the real anxiety had got kicked off from there because. Um, and again, my timeline is difficult, um, but I had made some decisions. I started real estate investing in 2005, um, and I had made some decisions in 2005 that would come back to bite me. 
And um, in 2009, I had a business partner who had illegally loaned me some money and he was being investigated by the FBI. And so what do they do? Whoever's involved in that, they come and they start investigating anybody who's, you know, the tentacles that reach out there and they investigate it. Did you know that was uh, illegal money at the time? Um, so the situation was we, the first five properties that, that I did, um, we sold those, we flipped them, um, for, um, for cash. And so, so that we could get the business up and rolling. And the first four properties that I did, we sold to investors and they qualified for the loans. They did everything that they were supposed to do on their end. But the problem was, is that they had 401ks and IRAs and they want, they, they were going to use that money for the down payment. Well, in order to pull money out of an IRA, it takes three to five, sometimes even six weeks to get that money, um, to be able to use it. Well, I couldn't wait that long because I had properties waiting on me. So I went ahead and I cut the check for the closing. Well, the first four loan, first four properties that I did, I didn't know that was wrong. No title agent told me that was wrong because there's a state, there's a statement at the bottom of, of a HUD statement, a settlement statement on your first pa- first paper that you sign that has all the, the scary numbers on it. It says all, all funds for this closing come from the borrower. Well, the funds for the down payment that I that I used came from me, not from the borrower. So on the fifth one that we did, the title agent brought it to my attention that, hey, did you know that this is illegal? You can't do this. I said, well, we're at the closing table. I've got a check written out. I've got a closing that's coming up in two days. I need this money. Let's go ahead and do it. And so that was in 2005. I got investigated in 2011. So six years later, I'm being investigated for something that I did, I, I, I did six years prior and had completely forgotten about it. I, I, didn't, I didn't think about it. I, I, I thought about it for a couple months after I had done it. And then it, just because I was you know, buying so many properties and doing so many things, I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't get caught. I didn't do it. So I just moved on. And so um, when my partner started getting investigated by the FBI for, for whatever he did, um, they investigated me and they went all the way back to 2005 and they found those five properties. Uh, and I had to answer to that. And, um, after a 12 hour proffer, which is basically an interview by the FBI and them coming to my house and, and, um, doing all the things that they do. Um, I basically got charged with, uh, one count of mail fraud Um, and got, uh, in October of 2012, I got sentenced to 21 months in federal prison. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I would imagine that whole investigative process and such must've just been an incredible, overwhelming amount of stress for you. It, um, it's, it's hard to explain. Um, it, it, uh, I mean, when they, when they came to, um, to, to arrest me, uh, I actually wasn't home. And we were we were having a garage sale um, on a Saturday afternoon, and they raided my house with fifteen armed, fully, you know, guys in in vests and FBI vests and everything. And I wasn't even home. And That's so my really kids, interesting. Like you were cooperating at the time, weren't you? Fully, fully cooperating. Fully cooperating, and, and, and they still show yeah. up like like that <laughs> yeah. to your house. And were you about yeah. to say your kids were home? 
my my kids and my wife were home. Yeah, and that's that's a lasting memory that we, um, you know, that we we still we still talk about. Um, it's come up in therapy several times, and they just um, pounded on the doors and shouted. Well, we had the we had the windows open, and they shouted. You know, they they wanted they wanted uh, they wanted me, and I, unfortunately, I wasn't home at the time. Um, I was actually at my bankruptcy attorney's office, and uh, the, my wife called me, and they said uh, they're here to get you. And I was like, "Who's here to get me?" And they said the FBI. And I was like, "What?" And so they, I told them exactly where I was at. They told me to stay right there, and they came over and they arrested they arrested me. Wow. And you yeah. were then charged, you said, with, you said mail fraud? Yeah, so so it's kind of a catch-all in the system. Okay. Um, it, it's uh, because I got a cashier's check. It was over the wire oh, um, right. for those for those closings. So they were they were able to come in and, and, and I, had, I admitted everything. Like yeah. right off the bat, I was like, yeah, I did this, this, and this. I was like, you know, and, and after a 12-hour interview, you know, I, I basically, I brought seven boxes because they originally thought it was like a, um, what do you call it? The, like a Ponzi scheme where right. I was, you know, because a typical scenario when somebody gets busted in real estate investing is they don't even do anything to the houses and they take false photos and they got appraisers in their pockets and all kinds of crazy stuff. And like, I had to come in there and prove to them that I actually rehabbed the houses and did what I said I did. And, and so we did all that. And then it basically came down to those first five properties that I ever did. And, it was mainly because of the dollar amount of those five properties that, because uh, there's a there's a point system in the federal system, right? And and that point system took me over the ability to be able to get uh, probation or to get home detention or anything like that. So I actually served time in federal prison in 2012. So it sounds like, uh, just to make sure I understood this right, like those first homes you had financed in a way where you really believed you had the money. It just wasn't quite accessible yet. Yeah. We sold them to people that had the money. Okay. Gotcha. And, and so, and they qualified with it and they were using the, for the down payment, they were going to use their 401ks or IRAs. Right. And so they were going to pull the money out and it took them, you know, three to six weeks in order to get that. I, I couldn't wait that long. Gotcha. gotcha. So I just went, I just went ahead and stroked a check, a cashier's check for it, brought it to the closing table with my company's name on. I wasn't trying to hide anything. Right. And, and the reason is, is because I didn't know it was wrong. And yeah. so, but I, I had to admit, to, you know, in my proffer that, that, that fifth one, I did know it was wrong and the title agency did it bring it to my attention. Right. Um, so, so that's where they charged me with the one count. Cause I was up front and honest and, and uh, like, look, I screwed up. I did it, but I never in a million years, not that I would have done anything different because I, I did what I did. I mean, I did exactly what they said I did. And, but I never in a million years thought I would have gone to prison for that. And so you said you were sentenced to 21 years. I'm 21 sorry, months. 21 months. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, 21 yeah, months. Yeah. And how much did you end up serving? 18 months. 18 months, almost the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a, it's a short sentence, believe it or not. It's, um, I, I was in, I was in prison with some guys that had done 17, 18, 20 years. I mean, and, uh, that's really where my, um, message of hope starts. Um, because I went through my bouts with depression and anxiety where, where I was really in that real dark place during that time where I was losing everything. And then I just was in straight fear, uh, the rest of the time until I went to prison and up till, you know, 
a month after I was in prison because you, you've got the, the shows on TV, right? You know, the locked up and all that stuff that, you know, you, you prepare yourself for. That's not at all where I was at. I went to a prison camp and not, not that it was easy and it was all fluff, but compared to what you see on TV, I, I wasn't in a place where I was in any danger. Um, I was just the, the, the pain and the heartache came from being separated from my family. So what was it like in prison for you? Um, kind of describe a day. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a typical prison story. And, and the reason being is that for some reason I was blessed to have the, literally the day I walked in there, I had about 12 guys just come around me and, uh, you know, my, they call them cellies, you know, your roommate. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, um, he had been in prison at the time when I went in for 11 and a half years. So he knew the system. He was, he started in a max facility and worked his way down with good behavior and with time. And so he knew his, the ins and the outs. And he was, he was, uh, he was institutionalized like nobody I've ever seen, but he, he taught me everything. He taught me what to do. He taught me what to say. He taught me what not to do. Um, and within the first couple of weeks, I got my, the biggest thing that he had told me to do was get yourself into a routine. You know, so I worked out like crazy. I, I played basketball. I worked in the education department and these 12 guys that came around me were guys that were all involved in ministry in the church. And I, I just, that's where my kind of, that's where I, I, I learned hope. But you, I, I were, you were in a cell? Um, so we were in a giant dormitory. Okay. Um, and it was, it, it's weird. It's, it, they're like six foot block walls. Uh, it's an open, open air type thing, but they're separated by block walls. Um, and so you had, you had a roommate, uh, a celly, but, uh, it was an open air thing and it was noisy as all get out. Uh, we had, you know, we had a TV room and we had, we had things to do, um, you know, but like I, I was in Manchester, Kentucky, which if you're familiar with Kentucky, it's the, it's the far east side of Kentucky. So it's in the Cumberland Plateau. And, you know, so around us, we had no fences. There was no fences at all. Uh, it was a it was a it was a prison camp. And uh, right next to us was a medium security facility uh, that had all the traditional barbed wire and huge fences and everything that you had. But where I was at, you know, if you wanted to take off and run, you could take off and run. You're going to do more time, but you could just you could just take off. And we were in the middle of the Cumberland, you know, mountains, and it was beautiful. I mean, I, I woke up every day to fog and deer, and you know, it, it was beautiful where we were at. Now, I don't mean to you know shed so much light on it, the fact that it made it sound like it's a great place to be because it wasn't. It sucked, but um, it it was it was really hard being away from my family. That and and the way I I I I try to tell people that it's two different types of depression that I experienced. The initial depression that I felt when I was going through my investigation and when I was losing everything, that was based on fear. That was based on, on, um, it was more of a physical pain. The depression that I felt when I was in prison was a, was a heartache. Um, and I don't know if I'm explaining that well or not, but it was more of a, I had never been, separated from my family before and my my family on paper we should have been homeless uh, because i was the the sole earner at the time you know when i when i actually went to prison my wife she had stopped working because we were doing well in real estate um she had stopped working and so we basically had no income whatsoever 
And that's when the people around us and the community just kind of stepped up. She found a job and things, things weren't great financially at all, but we, but we made it. And, um, but really it was that separation piece. Cause I was, I was lis- missing a year and a half of some pretty crucial years with my kids. Right. Um, and, and, and those two different types of depression, at least in my personal journey, were completely different because, um, the first part was all about fear. The second part was just about, I was just hurting like in my heart because I was away from them. Right. Uh, were you still having symptoms that you would describe other than the heartache? Yeah. Um, the, the main thing was guilt. Um, it, 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 it was about guilt. Uh, and it was about shame, uh, of where I had taken my family and where I had taken myself. And, and that, that kind of drove me into just a sadness. Like I was, I was really sad the first couple of months I was in prison and, and see, that's a difficult thing. Sadness is a difficult thing in prison because you don't want to show that. Um, you don't want to, I mean, you don't cry in prison. You just don't, right. uh, you, you go off on your, on your own or you go in the bathroom stall or you go do whatever you got to do. And, and, uh, what was really valuable is these, these 12 guys that kind of came around me, it became okay. Uh, once we got to know each other, um, you know, when you are sitting across, so let me give you a little snapshot of the guys that I, that I hung with. Um, there was one guy from the South side of Chicago who was, uh, in the Latin Kings. He was one of the, one of the, uh, one of the, uh, gang leaders in Latin Kings. He ran drugs his whole life. Never, never filled out a, 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 a taxes in his, in his entire life. Uh, I actually still talk to him today. He's still in and he gets out in July of next year. Um, awesome dude. Um, and, and I, I pray for him every day that he can, he can not go back to where he was. But so I, I got a guy from the Latin Kings. I got a guy who used to run, uh, an online business who made millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. Um, and got busted. I got another guy who, um, used to run a, run a grocery, like empire and, and I mean, millions and millions of dollars. And then I got a guy that's from, um, El Paso, Texas, who is literally lives on a dirt floor. And so I got all these guys around me who have been through what I'm going through right now. And they're all at some form or another dealing with levels of stress, anxiety, depression, and, and we're able to get into a circle and we're able to talk about it. And the cool thing about what I learned in prison was that once you get past that surface stuff, because here's the thing in prison, like everybody knew what you did because you literally carried around your paperwork with you the first month or so you were there. So the people knew what you did. So you weren't, you know, they knew you weren't a snitch or whatever, you know, so, so you carried around your paperwork so people knew what you did. So once you're cool with that, you can put your paperwork away and you can get to the real stuff. And so... I didn't have to sit across from these guys and wonder, hey, what did you do? What did you do? Are you telling me the truth? You know, we did, we we cut through all that crap right at the beginning and we could get into what really was going on in our lives and it was it was cool because a lot of the guys that were in that circle were thinking the same things I was thinking. I just didn't know. I thought I was on an island by myself. You know, we were all sitting around and every once in a while it'd be woe is me, but a lot of times it was Hey, what are you dealing with right now? Well, my son's, you know, being a turd at school. You know, I still got to be dad. How do we be dad? 
you know, or, or, you know, I, I'm really struggling with depression. I'm really struggling, struggling inside. We had two guys there that attempted their lives while we were, while I was there, two out of those 12. And so it, it gets real. You know, I had a, had a guy there that lost his two year old daughter while he was there. Wow. And you know, when you can, when you can share those experiences with, you know, that group of 12 guys, I mean, that, that, that develops a bond that you can't do. And, and who in the, who in the world would think, you know, suburban white dude is, is friends with a guy from the Latin Kings. Right. You know, it sounds like uh, you guys created your own support group. We did. We yeah. absolutely did. And, and was and, that and, mandated? I mean, did they tell you, all right, guys, did staff say it's no. time to circle up or anything, but you guys just nope. organically no. created this support. Yeah, we, we, um, it, it happened cause, cause we, we would wait in line for chow for, for food and, and, you know, I just I just happened to choose to sit, you know, in the chapel and wait because you could you had to walk kind of through the hallway to get to, but through the chapel to get there. And you know, as I was sitting there in the chapel waiting, I I just kind of struck up a conversation with these guys, and they're like, "Hey, man, come come join us." And this was literally the second day I was there, and that set a trajectory for my time in prison to be one of growth as opposed to just beating myself down the whole time I was there. Cause that's, that's the direction I was going. And these guys helped to help to lift me up. Right. And because, because it's, it's really easy when you have that much, it's hard to explain what literally I didn't have to do anything at all during the day. If I didn't want to, I could just sit there. Right. I could, I could read, I could do anything I wanted to do. But these guys were such an encouragement to get out and to get a routine and to and to read and to, you know, find that self-worth and, and have conversations with my wife, have conversations with my kids and still be dad from prison. And that's a difficult thing to do, um, you know, with with as young of kids if I, as I had. But they got to visit me regularly. Um, it was it was good to have those conversations because we got to work through not only what I was dealing with, because technically the way I see it, my wife got the sentence. I didn't. Right. Right. You know, cause she still has to deal with the day to day stuff. She was, she was going through depression and anxiety at the time and that undiagnosed, you know, that we didn't really know about, but she was just so busy and so exhausted. She didn't have time to deal with it. Right. When you talk of these 12 guys, were they all, together in the dorm is that how you've identified them as like the 12 guys or are they the, the 12 <laughs> you always uh connected with in the chapel or in the chapel yeah okay. yeah it was it was all it was all in the chapel a couple of them a couple of them were in my dorm with me we had we had we had four different dorms on campus on, on the compound with how many uh, guys could, in each um there was a total of i think there's 1100 guys there Whoa. And they were equal. Yeah. Yeah. It was a little, it, yeah. It was big. Um, I just talked to uh, Tuan, this guy's name that, that I still talk to from the South side of Chicago. And they just, they just like cut the, cut the people in half. So it's like, it, there's only like 500 people on the compound now, which makes it a lot better because things were pretty crowded. You know, sports were, sports were pretty, uh, pretty hectic. Um, but it was fun. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was something that definitely lifted me up and, um, you know, but it was hard. Were there it, it guards really hard. all around, like the entire time? Are there armed guards walking the place? No, no, they're not armed. They're not armed. That was over at the medium facility. That uh, no, they had they had uh, pepper spray. I think was the worst thing they carried around. It, it it wasn't when when they 
I always tell people that as a taxpayer, you would be very, very uh, upset if you knew. <laughs> well, it's really if you in- knew what what that was all about. Yeah, it's really interesting though because when you throw out the term federal prison, I mean, mm-hmm. in my mind, it's like lockdown guards everywhere guns and like you said i mean that's part of that is the perception i get off of all the tv shows right that show you right all the maximum security and all the issues and the troubles that can happen so answer this question for me and this might be a little challenging so your first depression clearly like obviously you're struggling you're sitting in the dark you you've got stomach issues you're not eating right you can't even communicate well with your family like depression 110% clearly right mm-hmm. when you talk about going through depression being in prison in my mind i'm trying to distinguish here like is it heartache and i really miss my family and i feel like crap for what i did versus is it really depression and you you talk about it like it's definitely depression and it's a different kind can are you able to kind of distinguish what does it mean to have heartache and really miss your family compared to going through depression while in prison well i i think see for for me the way that i i view depression and this this is right or wrong um, is I, I feel like there's different levels. Uh, I think, I think for me, um, it starts like in the morning, like I still deal with anxiety and depression to this day yeah. and, and I can, I can feel it. Uh, and my, my wife calls it my, my funk. And so we, we literally right in the middle of it, we can identify it. Um, and that's awesome. Yeah. And it, and we work through it together. Um, but you know, when I was going through what I was going through prior to going to prison, it was, and I know I've said this before, but it, it was a physical pain. Yeah, I, I I didn't feel that physical pain when I was in prison. Right, and I don't I don't know if it was because I was more active, was because or, or, or what the reason was, but the, the heartache and the and the and the pain I think were a they snowballed, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and then when I got into that dark place and and I started thinking about oh my gosh my you know, like when I was in prison, my son learned to ride his bike and that was a big deal for me Right. where, I, where I was like, man, what kind of a worthless dude am I that I can't be home with my son to teach him how to ride his bike? That's crazy. And so it was this snowball effect that got in that anxiety builds up and it builds up. And then, and then it literally is like a two day recovery, <laughs> you know, from, from that anxiety. And I view that as, as what my depression periods were when I was in prison right. was almost like, well, almost like working through the recovery from what I'm, I'm working through. And really what that was, was my, my circumstances and, and, and the consequences of my actions. And, and I, I think, I think there are sometimes where, you know, there's what, what do they call it? And, and again, I'm, I'm no clinician or anything, thing but like situational depression right you know yeah. for for me that was situational depression but what i'm dealing with now in my current state right now i feel is 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 a degree it's not situational like i i i live in it sometimes mm-hmm. and and really a lot of times it it happens for me in the morning the morning early morning hours right now for me are really bad um, because I'm thinking about my day, I'm thinking about you know whatever had gone on the previous couple of days, and I let that ball up in my, my stomach, and it's that knot that you talked about earlier that I have to 
and, and now what I've realized is that I have to be vocal. Like I, I can feel that release when I'm vocal with my wife or with a, a couple good buddies that I've got as a support network. You know, I can feel that release when I talk about it, when I get it out there. And then it doesn't, it, I don't have that long period of where I'm in just, I'm just down in the dumps for three or four or five days. Um, and, and I think what prison taught me is how to cope with that depression. Um, because I was left alone to deal with it. You know, I was left alone to figure this thing out because it really came to a point. I'm either going to figure it out or I'm going to end this thing. And we're all, we're all going to be done with it. But then what I realized was the trickle down effect of me making that second decision is that my wife and my kids and, you know, my surrounded family get to deal with that for the rest of their li- rest of their lives. And so really what I did while I was in prison was I learned how to cope with that depression. I learned how to cope with that anxiety and work through it in a healthy way. Right. So I don't know if that answered your question, yeah, but that's no, really the way I feel. Yeah, I think so. I, I would definitely agree. Like there's a continuum of depression and everybody is somewhere on that continuum, right? Whether you're Mm -hmm. perfectly mentally fit or not, I think of it just as a mental health kind of continuum. And another piece that really resonates with me is, um, and I've said it often, I think there are different types of depressions. And I think it's much more than just like situational depression or dysthymia, chronic depression. I think Mm -hmm. there are other types that still need to be explored because my, my two bouts of depression were very different too. So mm-hmm. throughout all of this, a couple questions come to mind. One, there was a big gap, right, from your first depressive episode, and then it was living for another seven years or so until prison, right? Six years? Yeah, it, yeah, it was, it, was, it was about that time, yeah. Yeah, yeah so about, about that time frame. What, uh, what were those years like, and were you still struggling with depression? Was it come-and-go type of depression? Was it a rock-solid, or, or were you okay? Yeah, no, I wasn't okay. <laughs> it, was, it, was, uh, it was this huge ebb and flow. I remember, I remember the high, so high and then so low, because what I would do is I'd forget about you know, pending investigations, or I'd forget about you know, the fact that, you know, I got a lot less zeros in my checkbook. I'd forget about that for a short time. And that was usually when I was with my friends or with my family or at church or or something like that. But then I remember times where I'd be by myself or I, I, you know, something would pop up on TV or something like that. And it would be about real estate investing or whatever. And it literally would be a trigger for me to just start down that snowball, start down that, that, that road of just, you know, this woe is me, you know, this is this, this look what I've done. And then, and then I just kept going and going and going. And I, it, as I, as I started to realize it and my, as, <laughs> as, as my wife will tell you, as she started to get sick of me, you know, you know, dealing with it, you know, ha- having to deal with that, you know, because that from the other side of it, you know, it can be very exhausting, you know, oh, a, 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 a spouse watching you go through that. Not only is it heartbreaking, but you know, it's, you know, and, and my wife and I both grew up with parents that were, you know, of the generation of, you know, wipe the dust off and get back in the game type situations. And, mm-hmm. and, and so that's what we grew up with. And that's what I, you know, I used that in the beginning as, as kind of my mantra. I'm like, man, I, I'm a dude. Like I, I've been in sports my whole life. I've, I've achieved, I've never really failed. So 
let's get up there and let's try it again. And, and so that, that was kind of my mantra in the beginning. And, and I, I did, you know, but I also, you know, kept realizing that failure. Right. And so that, that, that is not situational depression. That, that is a continual thing. That is a, you know, five year bout that I had and, and, and still continue to work through it right now. But you know, the thing that we stress in, in, in building a refuge that, you know, you and I, I'm sure we'll talk about later, but absolutely, it is the fact that, that we are all, you know, I, I, I talk to people out there all the time well, that you can cure depression. You can do this, you can do that. Well, my answer to that is, okay, you just cured me of depression. I, I walk out of your office and I hear that my dog died. You know, it's like there are circumstances, there are situations that we are all going to go walk through, whether they're short term, long term, where we're all going to have to at some point deal with depression, sadness, anxiety of some sort. So we have to learn to cope with that because if we don't, then we will choose unhealthy coping mechanisms or, you know, with, you know, you and I being the same, you know, same general age, you know. We're in that demographic of the largest growing suicide in the, you know, of any age. And so it's like, what, what choices are you going to make to work, to help, to cope with the depression that you're dealing with of varying degrees, like you talked about earlier? Some, some, is, some is major depression. Some needs medication. Some needs therapy. Some needs a combination of both. Some needs, you know, just a group around you. Some, some you just, it, it can't be a one size fits all type scenario, even for your own personal health. Right. Uh, you know, that was a perfect segue because my next question was going to be whether or not you ever got any help for your mental health. I mean, you, you were so deep and dark that you had a suicide attempt. You went to prison, mm-hmm. you were dealing with it. Did you ever reach out for help? Did you ever go for professional help of any kind? I did. I did for a short period of time, and and um, I, I I'm one of those stories where where therapy didn't really well. Actually, when I went to prison, it was mandated. Um, so we had we had uh, like large group therapy, and we had a we had a couple sessions where it was just one on one, and 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 that well, <laughs> it would seem cool. Uh, the, the the real therapy happened with the twelve guys I've been talking about, but. Th- there is no rehabilitation with the prison system. There just isn't. And it, it's, it's, it's a check mark on a box. Ah. Um, and it's just not, it's not productive. It's not open. It's not honest. Guys are there cause they have to be. You're and, right. um, so, so my real, my first experience with therapy was that, and it, it just wasn't, wasn't valuable to me. So it in was, my it mind was in the prison, it was mandated and yep. you were with a bunch of guys for the group therapy that, that, probably nobody wanted to participate and That's like exactly you said right. they were checking the box they were forced into it and it wasn't really any it wasn't very therapeutic not not at all right. and and it, so that was my first experience with it so that's just kind of the general idea of what I thought therapy was about and that's not at all the case and so so now currently uh, as of today uh, we, we are in therapy as a family oh, awesome. um, my, my daughter and myself and my son and my wife and so we um, yeah, we do it as a family. So, and and I, and I get my my therapy. I, I'm in a men's group, and 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 again, I, I, I I'm not sure you know how much we want to get into the faith piece of it, but um, you know that's the reason why I'm still here. Uh, that's the reason why you know I believe that I was together with those twelve guys while I was in prison. So, when we talk about therapy, when we talk about um, you know being able to get around a support network that we need in order to help recover. 
uh, and help to cope with what we're doing. Um, that is my therapy is, is my men's group. And then the, the, the family therapy that we do currently. Right. Yeah. So, so the attempt at therapy in the prison system was your first go at any kind of therapy. Um, even after it was, even after your attempt, you never reached out for any kind of support at that point. I never did. And, and, and thinking back, it was foolish. It was a foolish decision to make. Um, and, and, but the thing is, Al, is I, I didn't reach out to anybody. Like I, I, none of my friends knew what was going on. Um, my wife barely knew that I, what was going on. I was harboring all this stuff internally and, and, and nobody really knew what was going on. I was a magician at putting a smile on my face. Did you share um, with your wife about your attempt of suicide? Yeah. After I got to prison. Okay. So quite yeah. a ways yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. She did. She didn't know anything about that. So, right. wow. Um, so you really held it all in. Oh, it was, it was a long, it was a long road. Um, yeah. and it was a lot of, it was a lot of, uh, internalizing and, and I, and I realize now like how, how foolish that was, but I was in such a dark place. Like I, I, and I know this isn't realistic. This is not at all how it is. But in my mind, I knew that there was I had two choices. Either I was going to admit to what I did and I was going to go to jail or I was going to go to some therapist and be put in a rubber room and dosed with a bunch of medication. Right. I mean, I, in, in my mind, that was the only choices because I didn't know of the options that were out there. Right. You know, I had I, I had no idea what therapy was all about. I never had to do that stuff. Well, you know, th- that's I, why I, I think it's so important for men who are or anybody who's in a deep, dark place to understand that there are options and you can get better. And that first step really is reaching out to find out what is yeah. out there. Right. But I, I feel uh, kind of. I don't know what the word is. I feel bad when when you say you were foolish. I don't think you were foolish. I think you were deeply depressed, and yeah, and depression makes it so difficult to reach out for help. It makes it so difficult to talk about it. It's filled mm-hmm. with shame. It's filled with lies, right? And w- another piece yep. you mentioned that I could completely relate to is you felt a burden to your family, which everybody knows isn't true. It's not the case at all. But the depression. And I don't know, it sounds like you may have had this as well, just kind of the spiraling negative thoughts probably while you were in there, oh, particularly yeah. those three days, right? I I heard it myself, as you said, I was a bad dad. I couldn't be the dad I wanted to do. I lost the homes, right? And then when you're mm-hmm. sitting down there alone, not able to share your feelings with anybody, and you start just beating yourself up and spiraling down worse and worse, and uh, it's a it's a dangerous place to get to. You know, we, we, um, when, when my wife would come visit, you know, we would have an opportunity to hang together as a family and then the kids would go and, you know, grab some from something from the vending machine or go play, you know, they had, they had a little kid's playroom there. And I remember one of the first conversations that my wife and I had like serious conversations, you know, about our marriage and the status of things and, you know, where we were headed, you know, in my mind, um, you talk about those negative spiraling thoughts, um, in my mind, you know, while I was in prison, I was going to get my kids taken away from me. My wife was going to divorce me and I would end up being some guy that lived in an apartment all by himself and never got to see their kids and was divorced from their wife. And do you know that during that conversation, my wife told me, she goes, Eric, the thought of divorce has never come into my mind. 
Yeah, that's awesome, and that must have been really reassuring and comforting for you to hear. It did. It, it was very reassuring. Now I know that not all men are, you know, have that type of support network, and I and I want to make sure, you know, that that they know that you know there's hope through other avenues. But but you know, when you have a woman who is willing to ride through that stuff with you. Um, that in itself is something that is an encouragement and is, is, uh, is something that is hopeful because marriage can survive through depression, anxiety, and as, in my case, prison and an attempt on my life. And if that's not hope, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. That says yeah. a, a lot about, uh, the type of person your wife is. I mean, I know when Absolutely. I was in my deep, dark depression too, I just kept thinking the same thing. Like, my wife's going to leave me. I'm mm -hmm. not doing anything around here to help the family. I can't. And, mm -hmm. uh, and just to, to stay at someone's side through depression is challenging enough. I can't imagine then 19 months in prison as well. It's quite a, yeah. a woman you have at your side. <laughs> yeah, she is. She is. I'm, I'm, I'm a lucky man. Most definitely. So tell us, uh, you know, what happened when you got out of prison? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, you get into a routine, you get, you get, uh, you get going. And then, you know, about your last six months while you're in there, you know, they call it, you know, you're heading towards the door. And so you begin to prepare yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, you know, your, your family starts to prepare themselves. You know, you get a lot of guys who, who have been in and out of the prison system. So they know this, they know what's going on. They know what to do. And, and it's really, it's a really strange feeling. I have nothing to compare it to uh, leaving prison. It was exciting. It was um, incredibly fearful. I was nervous for lots of different reasons. And, and you know, when I, when I, the day that my family came to pick me up, I was incredibly excited and scared to death all at the same time. So I know you say there's nothing to compare it to. In my mind, I remember driving down the highway about 25 miles an hour with my first baby. <laughs> like thrilled to leave the <laughs> hospital with her and yeah. scared as hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm, and, I'm and, sure it's very different, but that was the thought that came to my head. So your family's well, we, coming we, and picking you up. Yeah, they're coming and picking me up and it was it was a beautiful day. It was it was a beautiful day, but see one of the problems that I had was I was supposed to go straight home, but I wasn't able to uh something got messed up with my paperwork, so I had to go spend 8 days in a halfway house in Indian, in downtown Indianapolis. Oh, you are and, kidding. And you found that out that, the day of your release? Well, I had to I had to go report to the halfway house just because I was I was on home confinement for a couple months after I got out. That's okay. just standard for when when you get out just to help acclimate you. Right. Um, but when I got there, they said, "No, we don't have any paperwork. You're going to have to stay here." And so the paperwork ended up taking eight days, and I got to spend it in the halfway house. And and um, you don't ever want to go to a halfway house. Let's just put it that way. Right. That was absolutely miserable. If I if they would have told me. I'm going to do eight days at a halfway house or you can stay in Manchester where you're at in Kentucky. I would have stayed in Kentucky. Really? It was, you it was do, absolutely uh, terrible. Eight days in the halfway house or another 19 months uh, where you were at. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> okay. But, just check. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, but you know, it's, it's a situation where, you know, I didn't have a job. Um, you know, my wife was barely making it. We were renting a house at the time. So it's like all of a sudden I go into this, 
you know, providing mode. And it was actually good for me because I, I was doing anything and everything I could do. I'm, I'm halfway handy. Uh, I'm not real handy, but you know, I was handy enough to be able to go out and build a few decks and, and, and do some things to get me jump started. And then, you know, we ended up, you know, starting this general contracting thing and we got very lucky, but it wasn't easy. It was, it was, it wasn't easy. You know, I, I have a, a group of friends from church that, you know, my wife came to me, you know, the last visit before I came home and she said, she said, Hey Eric, they want to have a party for you when you come home. And I said, honey, there is no way in the world I'm having a coming home from prison party with my church. <laughs> I'm just not good. I'm not, I, I mean, this isn't a birthday or a 50th, you know, anniversary yeah. or anything. I, I'm coming home from prison. It's pretty shameful. I'm not doing that. Yeah, I and don't so, blame you. But, I, I can understand that. Yeah. I mean, it's different. Like, you hear about some people exonerated, like they figured out 10 years later right, that they right. weren't really guilty, and that's a different right. story. So I could understand that. Yeah. You know, and and, and so, so we didn't do that, but, you know, 10 days later was my birthday, so they ended up coming over for my birthday. So it was cool. But so we, we had a support network here at home uh, that was incredible. Um, so if we needed something or if, you know, like, like when I was gone, you know, the ladies, the ladies that she hung out with, they'd come over and they, you know, when she's at school, like, and they come in and clean the house, you know, come in and do our laundry. And they, oh, they, they were awesome. just incredible. They were just incredible. So, like I said, my, my story is not really typical because I had a community around my family that took care of them. And so they, when I came out, they were the first ones there. You know, my pastor was the first one there when I got out and, and they were like, look, what do you need? And, and, you know, the pride in me and the ego was like, I don't need anything. I can, I can do it. And they're like, no, what do you need? Yeah. Oh, that's and awesome. And so they, and, yeah, they and, were there your, for me. And your wife's friends, you know, I mean, it's kind enough for them to not talk her into leaving you, let alone coming over and cleaning the <laughs> house for her. <laughs> yeah. No, leave that to her family. Cause that, that's, <laughs> <Okay>. that, <laughs> yeah. So we won't, we won't get into that, but. Um, but anyway, yeah, they were great and, and we had a huge support network. So that made my transition a hundred percent easier because, you know, I, I was able to kind of take those, if I was to worry, it was about getting a job and see, you know, I now have this new brand on me, right? I knew I have this new label on me. I'm now a felon. Right. And so it's like, what in the world am I going to do? And so, and you have to mention that, right? I mean, that's in job applications all the time, right? You absolutely do. And, and so, you know, the fortunate thing I had was I was able to earn a little bit of money by doing these decks and doing some construction stuff on the side a little bit. And so it, it kind of was this natural progression into this general contracting you know, role that I'm in now. And that has just kind of, and that's what I was talking about in the very beginning. I kind of went in reverse. I started real estate investing first. And then I, I kind of through circumstances and consequences and things have kind of made a living now doing general contracting. And, and, and also along with my general contracting, we, you know, I, I tell my story anywhere and everybody to anybody who will listen. Yeah. That's Um, awesome. yeah. Tell us, uh, tell us about building a refuge. So this is a nonprofit that you founded, correct? It is. Um, building a refuge is. Um, it, it, we we talked started talking about it about three years ago. We're we're an official entity as of about a year ago. Congratulations. And well, thank you, thank you. That you, you know that's a process. Oh, so I'm sure, um, yeah. <laughs> um, 
but really what it's centered on, we have two purposes, actually three, but the third one is kind of, kind of, uh, not really mentionable, but the, the first one is for us to bring community and hope around men who are hurting. And, and we do that through honesty and transparency and, and our testimony uh, of what we've been through and just shared pain. And, you know, I, I, I always tell guys, you know, we don't compare pain. We just share it because your pain is relative to what you're going through. You know, there's, there's a lot of guys that, that I talk to that say, Hey, you know, after I tell them my story, they're like, well, I, I don't really have that much going on because I didn't go to prison. Well, it's not about going to prison. It's about what you're going through right now. That's causing you to feel the way that you feel. Yeah, exactly. It's not about comparing, right? It seems that way once in a while too, when people are talking about uh, an attempted suicide, almost like, well, well, I never attempted. That doesn't mean you haven't had incredibly challenging depression to deal with. Yeah. Cause, cause pain is pain is pain, right? Right, You know, I I don't, I don't, I don't know, you know, exactly what every person that's brought in front of me, I don't know what they're going through, but you can read it on their face. You can read it on their shoulders. You know, you can tell the weight that they're carrying. You can understand what they're going through just by looking by seeing their eyes. Yeah. And so when they begin to tell you their story, you know, and and that's, what's the value of, of, of being transparent. The the value of, you know, of this podcast is the transparency and the things that you guys talk about on here is awesome because what it allows guys to see is number one, they're not alone. And number two, that they can go out and talk about what they need to talk about. And, and, you know, the thing that, that you and I have a responsibility of doing and going out and talking to these guys is helping them to understand what's out there for them. Remember in my story, I was talking about earlier where I, I only thought there were two options, right? Well, now my 501c3, my nonprofit that I run, we partner and work with 27 different mental health organizations in, in just my county. Wow, that's awesome. 27. I mean, I got a guy out in, in, in the sticks out in, in the middle. No, he's a mental health professional and he brings men out there and he milks cows with them and does therapy with them. Where would you ever have thought about that? I mean, it's just crazy. It's awesome. And so, so that is the, the, there's two things that we do. We, we build community around men and help them and, and walk through their pain with them. And then the second thing that we do is we are a conduit to other mental health professionals. You know, I tell people all the time, I'm just a dude with a story. You know, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a trained clinician. I'm not, I have no degree in, 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 in psychology or therapy or anything like that. But what I do have is a story and I've got pain that I can tell you about. And, but as soon as we identify what your pain is and where you're at, is where I can start to point you in a direction to where you can begin to seek out that help and seek out that therapy. You know, building a refuge is not the end-all, be-all solution to what your problem is. What it is is a beginning. It's a beginning for you to be able to be vocal. It's a beginning for you to be able to see and and have have transparency modeled for you, and then also be able to start your journey to get to recovery. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Are you typically working with men? In small groups or individually, a little of both? Yeah, so what we do, um, we have four major towns or cities in our county. Um, and what we do is we have – now, we have only you know been around for about a year. And we our, our first event was actually about a year and a half ago in November, uh, around No Shave November. And we've got um, – Harley-Davidson has really jumped in and helped us out a lot. So what we do is we plan it out. The, the first event we do um, 
is is speakers. So we bring in like three or four people to come in, and they're just regular everyday Joes, you know, that have have shared pain, and they come in and they tell their stories. And then what we do from that main event is we schedule once a month at at a certain location in those cities. Um, so we've got four major cities. So we do once a week. We do in each one of those towns. We do follow up events, and we do we just have small group. We just have guys who are who are interested in seeking out help, who are, we have a lot of guys that are, that have buddies who are really struggling, you know, and, and they want them, they want to try to help them. And so, you know, we, we, we talk with them on how we do that, but we all, we have therapists come in and we have, we have uh, different people in the community. Like we had uh, this last event that we had, we had the local um, police department and the fire department. Um, Cause in my town, we have this, we have this initiative that they're working on is the stigma free um, Fishers. I live in Fishers, Indiana, and they're doing huge things in our town through the fire department and through the police department on this different type of policing, this community policing where they're doing amazing things. And I just feel like I need to be, you know, that's part of me being a conduit is to let the guys, because a lot of these guys who are going through this trauma and going through this stuff, they will experience, you know, some form of, you know, meeting up with a law enforcement agent. And so if they understand you know, the, the law enforcement agency, their first, their first thought is not to cuff you and stuff you. Their first, their first thought is to get you the help that you need. Right. And so it's really opening up those lines of communication between people who we really need to seek out for help, but we can't because we have these preconceived ideas of what it is that they're out to do. Right. You know, and, and, and so, you know, therapy, you know, I, I had, I had, this ridiculous idea. I, I had this big obnoxious Jeep when I was going through what I was going through. And I always used to think in my mind because of my ego and my pride were, were center stage that I could never pull up in front of a therapist's office because everybody in the, in the, in the place would see my car in the parking lot and they'd know I was there for therapy. How ridiculous is that? Oh, I you can know, completely because, yeah. relate. I went to a therapist <laughs> who was pretty close to my work. And my first thought was, this is awesome. My second thought was, Holy crap, what if just going from this parking lot, the 60 feet to that door, somebody drives by and sees me? What am I going to tell right. them? You know, exactly. I mean, an immense amount of shame that I didn't even identify or relate to the fact that it was shame. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and when you start peeling back that onion, you know, that was the valuable thing that I learned in prison was as you start peeling that thing back, like at the center of my situation was my ego and my pride. And, and so, you know, when I, when I'm, you know, in this therapy session and a lot of the stuff that we are dealing with is around parenting and how we parent and all that stuff. And, and, and every once in a while, my background will come up and when I'm, when I'm talking through it and I get an opportunity to come home and kind of digest it, it's, you know, I, I really, how do I say this, but I'm really encouraged by the fact that I can identify, at least start to identify that I'm in what my wife calls a funk or when I, when I start into that depression mode, I can identify it right away. Yeah. I think that's, and, huge. and that, well, and that, and that's the hope behind it is because again, you know, if, if we get bogged down on the idea that, you know, we will have depression the rest of our lives or whatever, whatever the thoughts are that you have in your head, or you, you'll deal with that at dirt, certain times in your life, that can be an extra weight on your shoulders. Oh, absolutely. But when you've gone when you've gone through it and experienced it and dealt with it in a, in a healthy way, 
you can you can begin to realize that there's hope on the other side of that thing, and there's hope while you're walking through it too. Oh, absolutely. Um, so tell it, us uh, it, when your when your wife uh, tells you, "Hey, I can tell the funk's coming on." What steps <laughs> do you take? What's your next step? We talk, we talk, and we talk, and we talk, and 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 like I mentioned before, like I literally I can feel it physically when I talk. Yeah. That 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 release. And that's your um, one and only go-to. I mean, do you? I know you mentioned how you're fit. Oh no! Guy. Do you go out for a jog or something? And like in my <laughs> case, like I grab my tool belt, my so-called you know mm-hmm. tool belt, and I dive into everything. If I feel like, man, I have, I'm starting to feel down. I got to call a buddy. Mm-hmm. I got to socialize. I'm gonna pull out my journal. I'm gonna do some writing. I'm gonna get some exercise, whether it's just a walk around the block or a mile, you know, get some fresh air. I try to hit every tool in my tool belt to make sure that I never go down that deep dark hole again. Um, and so far, I've got from you the the talking, which is huge, right? You get it off your chest. You can talk yeah. about it. Be honest with it with a loved one who you trust. But do you have any other tools that you dive into? I do. I, I, I've got the men's group that I talked about earlier. I've got two right. guys that I, 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 you know, and, and that's the key is finding those people that you can trust. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've, I've got a guy who unfortunately six years ago lost his daughter to suicide and another guy who thank the Lord that, <laughs> that he, he got his daughter out of, out of sex trafficking. But like, I mean, these guys have been through some serious, serious pain. And, and it, it is, it is encouraging when you can sit down and you can bring anything you want to them yeah. and, and they can bring anything they want to me and we can carry each other's burdens and we can talk about it and we can take it out of that, that dark place. Cause that, that's what it is, is when we begin to start thinking about these things and, and, and I love your term that you use that spiral because that, that really is something where when we start to spiral, the natural inclination is to isolate. Right. Oh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. To, it, it, and that that is that is that was my downfall. And that is one of the worst decisions that we as men can make. Oh, because it's dangerous. When we, oh, it's 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 lethal. But, you know, um, that's that's the depression, right? Like I've heard the yeah. term uh, the catch 22 of depression, because everything you need to do to get better from depression is compromised by the very symptoms. Right. Like right. you said, you want to isolate, but you know, that's not best for you. It's best to be out and socializing, you know, you, yeah, you need I, to exercise, but you were talking yeah. about the atrophy and the aching of your body and, and you mm-hmm. should be exercising really. You're supposed to eat healthy, but you just talked about, you know, you, you well, you had your jaw wired shut. That's one thing, but <laughs> I, I couldn't even eat, you know? So right. it is. And I think that's part of what makes depression such a challenging illness. Yeah, it, it, um, like everything you said, I mean, everything you said, as far as everything that you needed to do, if you lined it up, it's like, well, you got a reason why you can't do that. And, and one of the, one of the things that is the easiest and most detrimental is just to go watch TV or, or, or just go up in your bedroom and go do your own thing. And, and it's, it's like that, that is just a continual path straight into that dark place. Oh yeah. And, it also and, gives and, you that and time to ruminate and to sit in those deep dark thoughts absolutely. that continue to spiral down. Absolutely. And so when I when I started building a refuge, um you know, one of the things that we we talked about was we can put together all the, you know, fancy events and have all these great partners and do all these things, but will the guys really come? You know, will they show up? Right. And 
And, you know, when I think about my personal situation and, and, and what landed me in the basement with my depression and, and the things that I was going through was, would I, you know, would I respond to an event like this? And the answer was no, there was nothing you could do that would get me out of my, out of my basement. So the million dollar question is, how do you get guys to come and, and actually experience face-to-face communication when they're in the midst of their depression, when they're in the midst of that dark time? And, and we haven't yet figured that out, but I will say this, that, you know, our first event that we did, we had 78 guys show up. That's huge. You know, and and the second one, we had 65 guys show up. Oh, that's amazing. And so, you know, and so really, you know, it's that adage of, you know, if you affect one, then, you know, that's awesome. That's a, that's a successful day. And, and that's really what we have to continue to remember. We can't appeal to the masses. And the thing about this and, and, and this is one thing that I definitely want to get across is, you know, what you're doing is so valuable by, by the communication piece and the, and, and the ability for guys to listen when they're not necessarily wanting to come out into the community. They're not wanting to do this. They can still listen to this stuff in the privacy of their own home. Right. And hopefully that encourages, that encourages them to go out in the community because, you know, I, I love the awareness piece. I, it's, it's an absolute necessity the awareness piece. But I think where we have fallen short is getting the idea of community around men. Yeah. Because if, if until we are ready to actually face to face communicate and sit down and build relationships, this thing's never going to change. Yeah. It, it, right. it is, it's never, it's never going to change. You know, you, what you're doing is, is not only the awareness piece, but it's also given these guys hope through testimony and through story. And then in the hopes that they'll go out and seek that stuff for themselves. Right. And that's real. That what we're trying to do through building a refuge is, is when they're ready to come out of that basement or when they're ready to come out of that isolation, we're ready for them. Yeah. You know, we're, we're ready there with, with open arms to say, Hey man, come listen to some stories. There's no expectations. There's no, um, preconceived, you know, notions. You don't even have to say anything. Just come hang out. Yeah. You know, just come hang out and experience, remind yourself what it's like to have a relationship with another guy. Yeah. Because that's hard when you've been in isolation for so long. Oh, yeah. And you've been in that, that depressed state for so long. It's hard to remember what it's like to live with guys around you that, that like care for you. Yeah, absolutely. And to actually share and open up. Yeah. What, uh, what type of venues do you guys meet at? So, like I said earlier, um, Harley Davidson has really stepped up um, yeah. and 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 helped us a lot. Like when we when we first started, you know, talking about marketing this thing, we we're like, "Where's the manliest place right. that we can approach that would hang with us?" And we immediately thought about Harley Davidson. I love I've loved Harley since I was five years old, and I was like, "Let's go talk to them and see if they're well." Well, well, it just so happened the owner, you know, three months before we did our main event, she she lost. Uh, someone in her family to suicide three months prior to that. And so she's, she was, she was on board a hundred percent with what we were doing. The community got around it. The news stations got around it. We actually did a couple events at a brewery here. Um, We're just trying to meet guys. We're trying to meet guys where they're at, you know, and, and, and we understand and know that, you know, alcoholism is, is a big, you know, part of depression. It's a big, you know, it's a coping mechanism. And so we, we hesitated in doing that. Right. Um, you know, but you know, <laughs> let's just be honest, you know, a lot of guys, when they got worries and they got woes, they, they drink them, 
you know, yeah. they drink them down. They, oh, they sink them down. And so, so we're like, you know what? Yeah. So we're, we're just going to put that notion aside and we're going to go meet them where they're at. And it's been very successful. We got an event coming up at the end of April at a, at a local brewery here in Carmel. And, and, uh, we've got quite a few guys already signed up and cool. it's awesome, man. They're, they're closed on a Monday night and they just open the whole thing up to us. They're like, here, it's yours. So that is really cool. It, yeah. Communities come around us in big ways and guys who aren't willing or able to come out and, and, and to the events that we have right now, we're just trying to think of other resources that we can provide them. You know, and your, your podcast is absolutely one of them that we push out to them a lot through our social media. It's, it's huge. It's valuable. It's, it's, it's just testimony and story after story after story. And that's what they need to hear that, that message of hope. Awesome. So where do you go from here with, uh, Building a refuge, are you planning on expanding and, and just continuing moving forward with the groups, or do you have any future plans for the organization? Yeah, so we, we what we are doing, we we have such an, a, a problem here in our own county. Um, we, we had thought about, you know, expansion and all that stuff and what we were going to do, but we, we have so so many men uh, that are in this in the demographic that we're looking to, to focus on that we're just going to stay local. It's going to be a grassroots effort. It's going to be something where we want to, we want to build relationships. Um, because I, I ultimately with all my heart feel that that's the solution. It's, it's relationships. And, and so we're, we're in our own little corner of the world and, and, and we're doing what we can do. And, and, um, you know, as things get going, because the third part of building refuge that I that I mentioned earlier, we do have three parts, and and the third part is a speakers bureau, and and I've got three, you know, two other buddies of mine that that you know we will and and do go out and speak at other places, but really my concentration is is on those community level things, and and there's there's another branch of it that I haven't even gotten into, and that's the college age kids. Right. Um, that, that, that we are, we are actually that I am solely focused on my, my partner Brandon is, is doing a lot of the stuff with the community and I'm really, really honing in on this college, this college community because they are forgotten. Yeah. Uh, they are completely forgotten. They don't have resources and, um, you know, we're doing some cool stuff here locally at the Indiana, at uh, universities here in Indiana. Uh, with with starting like wellness officers in the fraternities and doing some other really cool stuff. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Oh, that's but really all ult- cool. Ult- yeah, ultimately it's 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 something to where we're just we're just going to stay grassroots. We're gonna we're gonna let it grow as it's supposed to grow, and we're gonna the one thing we're gonna do is maintain those relationships. Yeah, well, it's huge. It's in every piece you mentioned is the relationships, and I love the idea of tapping into the college folks too because. What a stressful time, right? It's a, it's mm. typically the first time away from home. If they're living at school, there's the stress yeah. of, of the the school work. There's the stress of most likely having to work these days along with school. Um, mm-hmm. So that's cool. Well, the work yeah, you're it, doing is amazing, Eric. It's it's uh, incredible, and you've like you said, you've only been around a year. I can only imagine it's going to continue to grow. It's great stuff. Well, I just I. You know, we, 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 I'm, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, right? So, so I, I automatically go to that whole side of how can we make it grow? How can we do this? How can we do that? I think it will naturally grow if we just continue to focus on the relationship piece. There's like that whole conduit to the mental health side of health side of things. And, 
and then bringing stories out to guys, you know, in, in within your own community, there's just, there's really not many people out there doing it right now. And, and really, if I can encourage the listeners, you know, for guys who have been through what they have already been through and they have that story, man, go out and tell that thing, go out, yeah. go out and share it with people, go out, go out and start their own building a refuge and in their own community. You know, it doesn't have to be this giant thing. You know, we, we've got guys like you out that, that have already gone through and, and, and done the things that they needed to do to start this awesome podcast. So let, let's just, I'm going to use you as a resource. I've been using you as a resource for my guys. Let's, let's all stick with what we know and what we do well in our own communities. That's how this thing changes. That's how, you know, you got a guy from Spokane, Washington, that's listening to your thing. You got a guy from New York City, and they decide to do their own building a refuge in their own community. Let's do that, right? And then that's that's how it grows, man. That's how we that's how we encourage guys to walk through whatever their circumstances are, whatever their consequences are, and 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 be able to come out on the other end of it with a with a with a huge amount of hope. Right. Absolutely. So. Sorry, so, I got on my soapbox there a little bit. <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. Um, before we wrap up, you know, yeah. you've been given a ton of tidbits here and there, but uh, I'd love it if you could share with listeners just like if somebody's listening right now who's struggling and going through a really difficult time, what's the, the biggest piece of advice you would give them? Well, I, it, was, it, it, would, it would be to do exactly what I didn't do. Um, you know, I, I, my, well, the way I coped with it in the beginning was the, the way that the, the stories that you hear all the time, you know, you, 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 you have some success in life. You do things the right way. You feel like you're doing them the right way and then you end up failing. Um, and then you just start in this spiral of, of depression and anxiety and then isolation comes and then, and then you just, you just get into that dark place and you're not able to recover from it for whatever reason. Either you don't have the support network or you don't have what it is. My suggestion and my, my prayer for the guys out there that are going through that right now is that they go out and seek help. And I don't know for each person, it's different for, for somebody like me. If you said, Hey, Eric, go see a therapist. When I was in my dark time, I wouldn't have done that. But if you just said, Hey, you know, your best friend's across the street at the coffee shop and he wants to talk to you. I'd have gone over and talked to him. Right. You know, so it's not, it's not only the guys who are going through the dark times, but it's the guys who are not yet gone through their dark times who have that best friend who's struggling, who's going through a divorce or, you know, has gone through loss of a child. I mean, you name it, you know, whatever they're going through, loss of a job, whatever it may be, reach out to those guys. Yeah. You know, and for those, for those guys who are hurting, Believe me and, and, and please know that I understand how difficult it is to pick yourself up off the couch and go seek help. I understand how tough that is, but it's the best decision that you'll ever make in your life because that is the first step and the most important one. You know, I, 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 I talk to these kids in college, you know, and I, and, and, it, and I try to compare that to the men who are out here. And the kids that I talk to in college are mainly in fraternities and sororities. And, and they have their group of people. They've got their relationships. They've got that community around them. The minute they leave there and they come out into this world, we, we tend to not have that anymore. And so when I'm talking to the college kids, you know, I, I, I hone in on those relationships that they have and those group of people that they have around it. The biggest step that we make as men 
when we're in when we're in our daily lives and the things that we've got going on is just making that jump into relationships you know and reminding ourselves what it's like to have a group of dudes around us that we can go hang with right. we had that in college we had we had that in high school we had that in our sports teams we had that in our clubs we had it in all that stuff and then through life circumstances and the things that happen we lose that yeah and when we lose that then that honesty and that transparency and that you know that that way that guys can talk to each other we lose that and so if i could just again reiterate what i just said the guys who are going through those dark times it's painful it hurts i understand it but talk to somebody yeah go talk to somebody and then the guys who have friends or or know of somebody who's hurting don't wait yeah go knock on their door right go knock on their door right now and get them the help that they need or just shut up and listen. Yeah. Right. Just be there for them. So yeah. I love uh, how you even kind of distinguished, like reach out for help. And for one guy, it might look different than another guy, but reach out for help. You might call your best friend. Somebody else might decide yeah. to call a therapist. Somebody else might call their chaplain or a rabbi or a priest. And, but reach mm-hmm. out for help with someone you trust. Um, that's huge. Yeah. Don't, huge. don't, for each for each person it's different yeah you know for and and that's why we can't generalize this thing yeah but uh reach out to somebody something whatever it takes absolutely well eric i want to thank you for your time i want to thank you uh for creating building a refuge what a cool organization uh keep up the amazing work you're doing thank you very much for your time for the interview and uh, make sure you stay healthy thanks Al. i appreciate what you're doing too